0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Nick Wilding about his really great new book, Galileo's Idol, Gianfrancesco Sagredo and the Politics of Knowledge. This came out in 2014 with the University of Chicago Press. And it's a not only a wonderful set of stories, just a really fascinating account of a really fascinating guy, but also it's a collection of chapters, each of which presents a really important and really interesting methodological and historical Geographical contribution to what we do when we do history, and uh, when we do history of science in particular. So the book places in the center of a story the a figure that's usually on the sidelines of histories of and with Galileo and the scientific revolution, and this is Sagredo. Now Sagredo Sagredo turns out to be someone who is a spy. He's writing um, hoax letters. He's pretending to be um, this sort of baddie old woman in some of these letters. He's also, um, his family owns a mine. He knows a lot about magnets. He's just a super, super interesting figure. And through this book and through, I think, a really amazing kind of, or many kinds of research in many, many, many kinds of sources and archives and collections, we see. Coming to life in a way that I've certainly never seen before. So it's a really wonderful book. It's written in such a way that the language is very carefully chosen. So, what that means is there's no, at least in my reading of it, there's no kind of wasted words, right? It's very, very, very thoughtfully produced and thoughtfully written, which means for me, it's really a pleasure to read through this book. It's concisely written, it's carefully written, it's very carefully structured, and like I said before, it's full of great stories. So it was really a pleasure to read it, and it was a pleasure to talk with Nick about it, and I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book and to look through it. It's not only full of some really amazing case studies and models of what it can look like and mean to do a really diverse set of kinds of research as a historian of science, but there's also some great color reproductions of some of the images that are discussed in the text. So thanks very much for listening and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today with Nick Wilding to talk about his new book, Galileo's Idol. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Nick, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today about a book that I am super excited about. So welcome, thank you, and it's great to have you here.
1: Thank you for the invitation, Carla.
0: So could you start us off, Nick, by, um, as is traditional for the channel, just saying a little bit about your background and specifically, how did you come to work in the history of science?
1: Well, I am one of those peripatetics. I've gone from uh, discipline to discipline uh, until I think I found my home here. Uh, I started off doing English as an undergraduate in England, uh, and then decided that I was an early modernist, so I did Renaissance studies for a master's, and then I stumbled into the field of history, uh, especially history of linguistics. That's what I was first uh, working on for my PhD in the European University Institute in Florence. And then I kind of by chance went found that some of the books I needed to look at were in the uh, the Institute and Museum for the History of Science in Florence and that they had a rather good library and that they were friendly and interesting and um, at the same time, I realized that there were very few jobs in uh, the history of linguistics and that the history of science was actually this kind of blossoming field we're talking about nearly 20 years ago now. Uh, so I thought, maybe that's of interest. I knew nothing about science whatsoever, and I, I didn't initially realize that that might actually be an advantage, so that was good. But I'm one of these um, kind of, I'm not a hyper-professionalized uh through-the-mill uh, historian of science. I'm someone who makes it up as I go along, uh, which I hope is a virtue, uh, but some may see me as a charlatan. We'll see.
0: <laughs> I think uh, many of us probably could claim the same thing, and those are my favorite kinds of books that come out of that kind of a um, spirit of exploration. Good. And it, this is definitely one of them. So even though the book's title has Galileo um, right in there, Galileo's Idol, The book focuses not on Galileo, but instead comes at him sideways, as you put it early on, by looking at his closest friend, his student, and his patron, Venetian Gianfrancesco Sagredo. So can you start us off by saying a little bit about um, two things, right? Who is this Sagredo character, and why did you choose to focus on him for a book-length monograph?
1: Good questions. So... Who is Sagredo? This is a question that people have been asking for centuries already. A lot of people seem to think that he's entirely fictitious. If you Google him, that's one way to answer these questions. Uh, you find out that he's one of the characters in Galileo's dialogue. Uh, and he is, but he's also, was also a real person. Although I'm very interested in how he became this character in a dialogue that people think didn't really exist. Um, how he becomes a, a fictional, uh, Persona. Um, the reason I kind of stumbled across him, I I did a very unconventional and, in hindsight, stupid uh, thing when I when I started getting into Galileo, um, which was basically, as I said, from this vantage point of being interested in the history of linguistics and especially projects for the creation of universal languages in the 17th century. I I kept stumbling across this. Very famous passage in Galileo's Saggiatore, where he talks about the universe being written in a character of mathem- in mathematical characters. And I started reading some Galileo and I realized that this wasn't just um, cool science, this was amazing prose. And I thought I would read Galileo. Uh, so I went along and I got volume one of Galileo's national works out and started reading, and then carried on reading. And I got to the correspondence, which in the um, the standard edition is, I think, six volumes of correspondence, mm-hmm. and started reading. And. It's a, it's a weird thing to do to read through an entire published correspondence and not just go to the index and look for individuals and themes that you, you know, usually we use these correspondences as a kind of uh, a resource to provide context to our research questions. And I thought, what if you just read this like an epistolary novel in a way? Uh, one of the voices that kept jumping out at me and demanding my attention Uh, was this extraordinary character, Gianfrancesco Sagredo, about whom very, very little had been written. Um, The editor of Galileo's works, uh, Antonio Favreau, writing over a century ago, had got the basic biographical information together and gone through the Venetian archives and given us a a kind of thumbnail sketch of him. But there was no biography. There were a few things by later Italian historians. But the voice just was really kind of insistent. And it was insistent not because of anything too uh, shocking in terms of uh, scientific content, but precisely because he would mix in... observations of magnetic declination with really, really heartfelt discussions of different qualities of Friulian wine, with um, economic stuff, with politics, with uh, discussions of his love life, um, with all kinds of gossip and uh, global news network tidbits. And the whole thing was just this kind of mess with the science deeply... Um, enmeshed within these other kinds of information. And you couldn't just uh, pull out little bits of scientific argument or fact uh, and make much sense of them. People had done that and kind of talked about Segredo's contribution to lens making and Segredo's uh, use of uh, ideas about magnetism. Mm -hmm. But that seemed to be missing this really, really rich uh, voice that, in a way, it was one of those moments where you realise you realise that you weren't looking for information; you were actually uh, talking to a dead person, which is one of those kind of weird things that historians uh, very strangely do as a profession. <laughs> um, so, so this voice just kept coming through, and then I, by the time I got to about uh, sixteen twenty in the Galileo correspondence, I thought, "There's so much here that." Uh, I really don't want to carry on reading anymore. Segredo dies in 1620. But I, I, I kind of felt like if I carry on reading this, uh, this correspondence, it's just going to turn into the trial and then I'll get all interested in the trial. And that's what everyone wants to know about in Galileo. So what if I just, uh, remain in ignorance of what happens after that and explore this world of the kind of the young Galileo or the younger Galileo? And his years in Venice, and try to go sideways uh, from there and use Segredo as this point of entry into that world and not think about where it all ends up, but think about uh, how it was constructed as it as it went along.
0: Now there are a number of really, really striking things about this study. Um, one of them, and we'll get to some of the others. Um, uh, there are a lot of them actually we'll get to some of the others in a bit, but one of them um, you mentioned, In the book, and this is the fact that, um, though this is your first monograph, this did not start out as the dissertation project. So, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I wrote a crazy uh, dissertation uh, (laughs) under the very, very laid, uh, laid back, and hands off guidance of John Brewer, um, which kind of meandered around all kinds of topics. There was a lot of Athanasius Kircher, crazy 17th century. Uh, Jesuit stuff, Mm -hmm. there was stuff about uh, instruments, a lot of it was about uh, universal language and history of linguistics. Um, And I was really given this luxury, as I regard it, most people would regard it as bad advice, but I thought it was this real luxury of writing a PhD which wasn't intended to be a published book. So I didn't have to think about who my readership would be beyond the committee members of my PhD. Uh, I didn't have to think about uh, audiences and markets and um, publishability. And uh, I was also, I was in Italy and I couldn't really uh, imagine getting a real job in a real place. Uh, So this was the product of a heterotopia. Uh, So I wrote a heterotopic text. Uh, I've since gone back and kind of scavenged and cannibalized various bits and pieces of of the PhD. But it, it resolutely wasn't a book. Uh, and I think it's kind of, I think we kind of rush as, uh, academics to kind of over-professionalize our students, uh, to some extent and deny them the pleasure of that, that space of just curiosity and pleasure. We, we force them into a a publishing world way too early. Um, well, that's my self-defense anyway. So then I, during my, um, the actual defense discussion, Mario Biagioli, uh, Pointed out, like footnote 73, chapter four, you have this little thing about Segredo. Why not write a biography of him? And I thought, well, that's, that's good feedback. That's an interesting project. Um, so from this little footnote and from this idea that the one thing I didn't want to do was spend the next two years turning my thesis into a, into an unsellable book, uh, I, um, I started doing really, really serious research on Segredo and, and had some very nice postdocs that allowed me to spend a lot of time in the Phoenician archives and found a ton of stuff that, uh, that basically hadn't been, uh, considered possible to, to find before. Um, whether it was at the level of kind of state documentation, diplomatic, um, exchanges, that kind of thing uh but I, I realized that there were there was a certain amount of official documentation i was really hoping that i would stumble uh, upon uh sagredo and galileo's missing correspondence all we have uh now are a load of letters about a 100 letters from sagredo to galileo which are fantastic but we know from internal evidence that galileo was writing back once a week or once a month for years and years so there must have been hundreds of letters from Galileo to Segredo. And one of the things that I really wanted to find and failed to, to find in the end was a trace or um, a stash of, of this correspondence. So I just tried to, um, to think through the problems of you know, what traces might this person have left in various different archival or, as it turned out, uh, uh, um, art gallery uh, Contexts uh, and what what's the kind of um, methodological improvisations that we can perform in order to provide new biographical context for this actor who immediately after his death was famous for uh, for not being remembered at all. Uh, so how do you how do you what? Just as a kind of historiographical challenge, how do you write the life of somebody who has left us only glimpses and fragments um, in quite an extreme uh, case? I mean, it, we're not quite at the level of Natalie Zeman Davis's tricks to travels where you have to actually think about making up sources to fill those gaps. But... Um, But just kind of moving from discipline to discipline and through the disciplinary spaces, how can we, uh, construct that kind of life? And what will that kind of life tell us about what's usually considered, you know, the main big story, the hagiography of Galileo himself? Uh, how does Galileo look when seen alongside his, uh, scheming, manipulative, libertine pal?
0: And this is actually, this is a great place to, um, from which to jump into the book itself, because one of, in fact, the really striking things about the book is precisely this range of kinds of materials and kinds of material traces that you bring to bear in telling this story. And this includes, and we'll talk about many of these, ornamental woodcuts, epistolary hoaxes, murder case files, intercepted letters, dictionaries, published correspondence, poems, and paintings. And so you mentioned the art gallery, and this is, in fact, um, where Chapter 1 brings us. So Chapter 1 identifies three portraits of Sagredo, um, and this is a really fascinating case study that you call the Mystery of the Missing Portraits. So you talk here about the importance of, among other things, digital humanities, the digitization, and the searchability of back issues of um, kind of journals and journal articles that we tend not to re- really pay much attention to, right, or have much access to now, in right. making possible um, the exploration and the finding of some pretty amazing portraits. So, could you take us into this chapter by talking about this um, for listeners? What is this mystery of the missing portraits, and um, what did you find when looking at, at and for these paintings of Segredo?
1: Right. So, one of the um One of the big challenges for anybody who works on Galileo is... Uh, to come up with something new. I mean, it's a little like working in the Shakespeare industry. Uh, It's not quite that plowed over, but we were blessed with this uh, fantastic editor of Galileo's works, Antonio Favreau, who from 1890 to 1910 uh, put out a volume a year of Galileo's works, and there's still this amazing resource. And in addition, he wrote about 500 articles about Galileo. So lots of the Factual and documentary questions have been answered. And one of the challenges is to step outside of the national edition and provide new context right? rather than just uh, reestablishing relations between the already known documents. Uh, so whenever Favreau says, I couldn't find it, I know it exists, but I couldn't find it, or throws up his hands in despair, there we go hunting. Uh, and one of the things that he said should exist, but he couldn't find, was uh, a, a portrait of Sagredo. Um, the reason this was interesting was that there's a very, very rich correspondence uh, between Galileo and Sagredo. We again only have Sagredo's letters to Galileo, where he talks in great detail about his negotiations uh, with a group of artists. Uh, a, a kind of workshop of artists, but basically two brothers, Leandro and uh, Geronimo uh, Bassano, uh, sons of a, a very the most famous portraitist of the late 16th century in, in Venice, Jacopo Bassano. Um, and we're given this very vivid description of what it's like to get your portrait painted uh, and why you would do it and what it's for. And the end result of this uh, this correspondence is that Segredo sends his portrait to Galileo um, and describes what the portrait's like and tells us how much it cost. And uh, and then uh, we find that Galileo actually had the portrait hanging in his room while he was writing the Dialogo while he was writing... Um, the, his l- last book, the Discorsi, both of which figure the character of Segredo. Uh, so these are kind of standing in for these at, at that point uh, deceased uh, deceased friends. These are the uh, the kind of web of intimacy that surrounds Galileo while he's under house arrest, uh, into his blindness, go- going towards his his death in his in his final years, and I. Th- I just thought that that was um, that there was something quite kind of poignant about that that uh, that fact that this this early reception of the of the portrait and um, and thinking about why it is as historians that we kind of we fetishize so much written documentation, but unless you're an art historian, we we're not very good at using visual evidence much, even though if one of our tasks is to recreate the lived experience of our actors, including their sentimental lives and thinking about how affect fits in with, say, an intellectual world, things like portraits might actually tell us quite a lot. Um, so that was the challenge. Find this picture. Now, how do you find a picture of someone who lived nearly 500 years ago? Uh, you don't know what they looked like. He left. He didn't Segredo didn't publish any books. There was no uh, extant iconography uh, upon which to draw. Uh, So you Google him. This is me, again, looking like a rank amateur, but it's really (laughs) important to keep Googling, repeat Googling.
0: Um,
1: Lots more uh, material is getting digitized every year, both uh, new material and historical material. And resources such as JSTOR... um, are expanding wonderfully. And sections of our kind of maps of knowledge are becoming visible now, which have been pretty much impossible to access for for years. So one of the resources about 10 years ago I was... um, I was beginning to uh, explore what was in JSTOR and what wasn't, to think, you know, how I had to supplement it by going through traditional indexing tools. And I came across this reference uh, to a book review in a JSTOR journal, the Burlington Magazine, very famous art history journal, just by shoving in for the 15th time that that year the name Segredo and seeing what came out. And I was led to this very weird book review that's, that was a a review of Italian masterpieces in Ukrainian museums from the late '80s, I think it was. Not the kind of thing, not the kind of book review that I would naturally have uh, have gone to. Um, so, this quite obscure publication uh, was reviewed, and it said, "Oh, interesting. There's this seg- portrait of a guy called Sagredo in in here." Um, now, my ears pricked up at that. Uh, I rushed down to the. New York Public Library, where they actually had a the volume under review, the Ukrainian Italian masterpiece catalog, and uh, had someone help me with uh, the Ukrainian. Found the image, and there was this guy who was a, a cheerful-looking um, Italian, uh, and apparently on the back of this painting. Uh, which is located in Zhitomir, which I've never actually seen. I haven't gone and seen the original. I've just been supplied with uh, photographs. It said, this is is um, Gian Francesco Segredo, a Venetian nobleman. Now, that was kind of interesting, nice to put a a face to a name. Uh, But what really surprised me was that I knew that I'd seen that face before. I don't have a very good visual memory, at least not for real people. But for images... um, I sometimes have a, a, an okay visual memory and then uh, out jumped from some dark recess. I knew that I'd seen this face uh, aged somewhat, but that it had to be the same face. So I we went scrambling through all of the, uh, all of the Bassano um, catalogs and found that in the Ashmolean Library in Oxford... Uh, they had a portrait that they bought in the 1930s. They didn't know who it was of. Various art historians had thrown, thrown up various, uh, they knew it was a kind of unknown Venetian senator kind of guy, some posh guy from the 16th century. Uh, this portrait had never been put on display. It was sitting in the, um, down in the stacks of the Ashmolean. And the face was exactly the same. So uh, looking by kind of then triangulating the internal evidence of that portrait with the evidence that Segredo provided in his letters to Galileo about the iconography of the piece uh, and biographical details, I was able to, I think, pretty securely match up the identity of the the two sitters. So the Jitimir the portrait says it's of Segredo in a 17th century hand. The uh, Ashmolean portrait, all the internal evidence, uh, says that it has to be a, a senatorial class, um, probably a, a consul, He has a peculiar kind of Venetian book called a Commissione d'Ogale, which is basically his his diplomat's uh, instructions sitting on the table. And on this beautifully painted table is a, is a, a very lavish oriental rug. Uh, and happily it turned out that there are people who know a lot about rugs and can identify them very precisely, the, the points of production. It turned out that this rug was one of the first of its kind ever to be painted in, in uh, Western European art, and that it was a rug from Isfahan, and there in one of Segredo's letters was a reference to uh, being sent a rug from the Shah of Persia in 1613. So everything... Uh, fitted together very nicely, subsequently we, we discovered traces of another portrait which may still survive. We only have a late nineteenth century black and white negative uh, photograph of it uh, but this was <coughs> this was a a whole uh, little field in um, in art history that the art historians hadn 't gone down because they didn 't really know uh, what was what was being depicted in this painting. And the historians of science had gone down because this was art history. So, uh, trying to make a virtue of my uh, interdisciplinary and peripatetic nature, I tried to breach those art science divides and and uh, work out what was going on. And the picture, it turned out, was iconographically very very suggestive. There are there's a kind of fantasy landscape in the background. This is on the cover of the book, so even if you don't go and buy it, just uh, have a look at the. The uh, judge it by its cover. Um, there's a, a nice building in the in the background, which can only be the um, the lighthouse of Alexandria, the Pharos of Alexandria. Uh, and there are lots of very very interesting discussions going on in Venice at precisely this time about what the nature of the cat- catoptrical device was in the lighthouse, uh, and even suggestions that this wasn't just a lighthouse, but some kind of, as Eileen Reeves call it, calls it, an imperial telescope, a massive Foucauldian panopticon, whereby the entire Mediterranean world could be uh, surveyed by the Ptolemaic uh, Egyptians. So this was, um, in terms of content, this wasn't just a picture of a Venetian senator either. There was an attempt to mythologize the new science. Uh, so it became this very, very rich source and a nice point point of entry into thinking about how Sagrada wanted to depict himself and how identity becomes lost because of divisions between um, academic disciplines where art historians and historians of science no longer talk to each other and are no longer trained in each other's uh, methodologies and, and techniques
0: and this is actually um a really nice aspect of i think all of the chapters is that in, in addition to presenting these moments and case studies, each one of the chapters also uses the material um, that makes up the content of the chapter to make some kind of an argument that has broader, or at least one argument make, that has broader historiographical and methodological implications. So, for example, as we move through the chapters, we won't have time to talk about all of the chapters individually, but chapter two, among other things, is making an argument by looking at Sagredo Um, And his roles in two major disputes, um, perhaps at least one of them we'll talk about. This is a a dispute between the university and the Jesuit college in Padua Mm -hmm. and the Venetian interdict. It's making a broader claim um, about the importance of making intermediaries and go-betweens into more active agents and network makers, right? Right, right. There's um, also a third chapter that, again, we'll sort of blitz through and maybe come back to on our way to the spying, Um, but a a third chapter that looks directly at Galileo in his pre-telescopic years and really looks, um, interestingly, at instruments as sort of social mediators and looks at the relationship between instrument and text. Um, So there's a lot of really interesting things going on in those two chapters, but... I want to bring us to chapter four. This is a super duper awesome, cool chapter. And this is a chapter that explores, as you put it, um, the use and movement of texts beyond the original intentions of the makers. So here we have documents that were intercepted and stolen and copied, and we'll talk about some of those. We have documents whose, as you put it, archival location tells us about their use. We have documents, um, as you put it, that lied about their own nature, and documents that should not exist. Okay, so to understand what's going on here, you bring us into August 1605, and this is a year where Sagredo was made treasurer to a fortress in Palmanova. He was posted there for a year, and this is one of two occasions when he left Venice for a prolonged period. And I mention this in part because I have to mark one of the most wonderfully horrible puns, in all of the books which is on page 50 absence makes the fondo grow hardier i was so so proud of that i get it (laughs) we are a very punning household here so i saw that and i was like oh i gotta mention that um, so you talk here about, um, so, okay, so there's a lot of stuff going on, but then he returns from Palma Nova to Venice in the spring of 1607. He There's a farewell banquet that uh, features a presentation of an ode for a departing traveler, and you talk about the text, you translate the text, um, you sort of give us insight into what's going on in this text. And then after this banquet, um, Sagredo goes to Aleppo. Now, in Aleppo, he's stationed there, and he became adept at, as you put it, intercepting, opening, copying, and resealing letters. Now, this is super fascinating. And so can you give us some insight into this aspect of the story? For you, what's um, perhaps most important for us to understand about Sagredo's activities um, doing this? And, you know, what's the larger consequence of this moment in the text or this, this aspect of your argument in terms of the larger work that the book is doing.
1: Right. Um, so I guess just in the, in the same way that the, uh, the portrait of Segredo isn't just interesting because of what it depicts, but because it uh, has gone through all of these transformations of reception of us not knowing who it, it represents uh, and simultaneously being the same object, which was Galileo's and is this uh, this monument of this very intense friendship. In the same way, I, I became more and more aware, especially reading the work of um, a great uh, Venetianist, uh, Filippo de Vivo, um, that the, the, I mean, it's a kind of base, basic point for students of literature, but sometimes historians struggle to get it, that uh, texts do not, Bring their own meaning. They don't have meaning. Meaning is constantly generated, and meaning changes over time and according to individuals and groups of uh, interpreters. Um, so, what I was interested in doing here was was trying to look at uh, the kinds of sources that would uh, open up these kind of interpretive communities and see how a single text might oscillate between radically different meanings as it travelled geographically and temporally to its perhaps final resting place, the archive, where we as historians encounter it, and how the entire history of the document could be narrated rather than merely its, uh, its purported contents. And how we could establish a dialogue or a series of dialogues about uh, the various ways in which a text has been made to signify over time. Uh, so one source for that is the um, these wonderful uh documents on um well in in this chapter, uh a whole series of kind of quite ambivalent documents where uh, you have, say, sat- satirical material being produced, which is not just uh, you know, it, it, it's genuine satire. It's Swiftian satire. It's not uh, jackass sa- satire, right? There are uh, this stuff isn't just funny. It's funny because it's uncomfortably funny because you realise that some groups, uh, especially the targets of the the satire. Are not seeing any humour, and so reading this material forces you to decide what kind of reader you are, and you realise that there are the, the text actually offers up different interpretations. Uh, you know whether you read it straight or whether you read it as satire, um, and you you can follow different reader groups kind of decoding the the various clues or refusing to decode the clues or not realizing that there are clues there and dividing themselves off into into different groups and and I guess the uh, the major insight there is that these groups were usually predetermined politically, so that meaning isn't just generated on some kind of individual aesthetic level. There's a whole uh, formation of political communities going on here, and reading is one of the ways in which community is formed, and then it reinforces itself. Um, so I was trying to work through again as wide a variety of sources as I, as I could. So Avizi, which are these newsletters, handwritten newsletters, uh, which are great sources. They've long been recognized as very rich sources for historians. Most of them to read, they kind of make your eyes bleed. They're just like a treaty was signed, a war was fought, the Turk is advancing, or, you know, it's just a kind of checklist, uh, of, of facts. And it's very hard to work out how to read these now. But if you can trace how they move through archives and pick up annotations and commentaries and get sent along with uh, letters that make sense of them in different ways, uh, you can see that the intention of the avizi writer, the journalist or the proto-journalist producing these things, is sometimes the least important thing about them. And that what's really rich and revealing are the transmutations in meaning that the document will undergo as it passes through different hands and is guided or sometimes um, violently snatched out of its intended readership and recontextualized into a new interpretive group. So um, I didn't want to propose a model of textual reception that was just based on a kind of success story that you know this text is recognized as some kind of classic and uh and then we can write a linear story of uh it's changing meaning over time based on a a model of consensus instead i wanted to think of uh contested texts uh texts that really divided groups uh, readers into different kinds of groups and revealed something about uh about their identities um so in some ways, this was trying to build on the you know, the classic essay of uh, Tony Grafton and Lisa Jardine about how Harvey read his, his livy. <laughs> but instead of looking at a single reader looking at one text over time, it was looking at different readers looking at uh, a variety of texts over time and seeing the kind of the struggles that were going on there. And sometimes when you're looking at these kinds of sources, so... Um, so, say, Sagredo, stationed as a diplomat out in, uh, in Syria, uh, the seizure of text, the kind of the desire to grasp a text is literal. He's actually filching through guests' um, mailbags while they're asleep. And... Uh, there's this whole kind of James Bond craziness to him where he's like cutting things open and resealing and for- forging wax seals and copying documents in languages that he doesn't even understand. And he sets himself all this task of, you know, give me something in Armenian precisely because I don't understand Armenian. Can I <coughs> excuse me? produce a convincing copy that an Armenian reader uh, can make sense of? If so, then I can produce an adequate transcription, even if I can't understand the text. There's this deep investment in the value of documentary culture, um, <coughs> which is really the the fuel of the early modern state. So part of the part of the larger argument uh, uh, that I was trying to intervene in here as well is to insist on the importance of archival and manuscript sources and uh, get beyond what I find as sometimes rather sterile debates about the print revolution and the the inevitability and importance of print uh, and look instead at Uh, the relationship between print and scribal publication as two forms of making textuality, which, uh, whose, and that relationship shifting over time and being very, very, uh, locally situated. Uh, so that's the kind of, the larger context was, uh, was an attempt to approach print from the vantage point of a, uh, deep investment in scribal publication and, uh, and that kind of world of manuscript circulation. And thinking of these things not as just being produced or published in a singular act, but that being a, an ongoing process that, whose history we could actually, uh, write and reconstruct.
0: And there's some great descriptions of this kind of spying activity in Chapter 5, um, and also some important points about the kind of history of these documents um, that he's intercepting and copying and sending back to Venice. And you mentioned that these files actually remained invisible for a really long time because they were archived under the wrong years. right? Right. So there's this really great um, sort of history of what happens materially to and sort of conceptually to a document that actually, you know, really deeply affects how we incorporate it or not into our stories. And there's also some really interesting stuff in Chapter 5 as well that challenges how we typically think of the kind of, as you put it, I think, nature and chronology of global scientific networks of the Jesuits. And so there's some really interesting contributions and um, revisitings of um, that history of Jesuits and the sciences in Chapter Five as well, but there's a, a moment before then that I have to ask you to talk about because it's hilarious and awesome. So before we even get to there, right, and we'll um, we'll kind of move beyond this in a bit. There's this fabulous epistolary hoax in 1608 where Segredo is pretending to be. I think you put it a rich old slightly baddie widow, and she he gets involved like under this you know pseudonym of Cecilia Contarini. He gets involved in this um, hoax where he sends letters right um, to, and it's, this is called the Berlinzone exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really funny. It seems really interesting, and also it's making a really important point here about the need to take the senses of humor of our historical actors um, playfully and seriously and sort of considerate in the histories that we tell, which is something that we don't always do, right, especially early modernist reading documents. So could right. you bring us um, kind of briefly into this epistolary hoax? What's going on here and, and what's important for us to understand about what's going on for us to understand the larger arguments that you're making here?
1: Okay, so the I guess the broad uh, the broad context is that uh, America's being discovered, and um and so Venice, for the last century, has been increasingly worried about uh how it 's going to remain rich uh, What are the alternative sources of spice going to be? How is Venice going to maintain its monopoly over the Western European market for spices? Uh, Vasco da Gama's gone uh, the 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 eastern Mediterranean is becoming. Venetians think, although in reality not much is is actually uh, there's not that drastic a, a decrease in in space in the space market. But Venetians are kind of convinced that uh, the world is out to get them, and that their uh, their main source of riches is threatened. And they're you know long term they're right. Look at the place now. Um, so uh, that one of the perceived enemies in in this world, and it's quite a paranoid world, is the relatively new missionary order of the, the Jesuits set up in the mid-16th century and very, very quickly becoming what we would call globalized. Uh, and I think that's probably a useful term to use. I mean, this is the first order that can claim that if there were something like time zones, they've got someone in each one on the world. No empire can say that. Uh, and very few, if any, early modern companies can say that, but the missionaries uh, have uh, the, the Jesuit missionaries have stationed themselves piggybacking on various uh, mercantile systems um, pretty much spread right around uh, around the world and For the Venetians, this becomes a threat because they think that what the Venet- what the Jesuits are actually doing, along with probably the Habsburgs is trying to construct a universal monarchy. Uh, And this drives them crazy because they think that uh, Venetian republicanism should be immortal, uh, should last forever, and that uh, on all uh, counts, attempts to construct a universal monarchy should be resisted. And along with, say, Elizabethan English courtiers and diplomats and lots of other people, uh, Catholics too, uh, they perceive a threat, uh, a a threat embodied by what they see as a a Jesuit information order that's global, secret, cosmopolitan, doesn't owe any allegiance to uh, nationality or family or all the things that matter in early modern identity. The Jesuits are terrifying uh, to Venetians. (laughs) The more immediate context, and um, is that in 1605, 1606, there's a standoff uh, between the papacy and uh, Venice. Uh, it's you know it's about a, a very minor, uh, or at a superficial level, it's about a very minor incident. But it, the result of it is that uh, Venice uh, is placed under interdict, which is spiritual death. Uh, to believers, it's very, very. It's hard for us to imagine what that means now. But uh, you are, you know, children can't be baptised, marriages can't be performed, uh, funerals can't be performed. This, this is deeply harrowing for a, an early modern Catholic to be placed under interdict. And the Jesuits are widely perceived to be the main machinators behind. Uh, behind this so segredo does all he can in every context uh, to expose the what he sees as the uh, the wily machinations of the jesuit foxes and his um, his solution uh, what, what he wants to find is uh, bad advice given by jesuits right stuff that uh, they wouldn't actually um, make public or write, but that they would uh, perhaps give to somebody who was vulnerable. So he constructs this very, very vulnerable persona, this aged dowager who's immensely rich and clearly he portrays her as slightly stupid. Um, she talks about how she goes on and on for pages about nothing. Uh, and he sets up uh, a very complicated system of You know, having a safe box where she can send her letters to the Jesuit without her family finding out. This is the the whole point. She's a, she has millions in the bank. She hates her family and, uh, she's thinking about leaving her money to the Jesuits, but she has a few problems, uh, with their theology that she needs answering before she can comfortably do that. Are they willing to help? And as anticipated, they say, yes, we are. And they, uh, try to work out various tax loops for her, various ways of um, her leaving her fortune to the Jesuits. Now, what the Jesuits don't realize is that this person doesn't exist. This is actually a 30-something, uh, corpulent, uh, libertine guy writing these letters, <coughs> probably drunk at the time, uh, having, a we- having a really good time, and that uh, he's not keeping them to himself. These letters uh, to himself he's circulating both his out copies of his outgoing letters and copies of the in incoming letters to his group, which involves people like or includes people like paolo Sarpi, uh, the Doge of Venice as well uh, this group of intellectuals um, who are deeply anti jesuit already uh, and this provides. This is just fuel for that, for that fire. So it's a, uh, it's funny because the Jesuits say really stupid things. It's funny because, uh, the voice of this person, once you realize that she doesn't actually exist, is just a comic masterpiece. And it's a little disconcerting that it is so funny now because you know, let's face it, most things that describe themselves as comedies from the early modern period, you really have to read the footnotes before you laugh, if ever. <laughs> and this is something that is just genuinely um, funny now. And it's also kind of revealing in that we th- there's a lot of, uh, well, amongst... Um, the the massive banal observations about what the internet has done to identity and to our, our sense of selves and stuff. There's this frequent claim that we can invent our identities for the first time. We can have virtual, virtual identities, virtual presences that are different from our, uh, our lived experience and yada, 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 that media creates, <coughs> um, the ability to multiply persona and live a rich and fulfilling fantasy life. Um, And here we see precisely that stuff going on in in epistolary culture. Uh, So I'm not making that point just to say, like, oh, there's nothing new under the sun, but that there are very specific relationships between certain kinds of media and certain uh, epistemologies, or even ontologies in in this case, um, which are quite exciting. The other reason I was very interested in this is that... um, Historians of science have done a lot of very splendid and, uh, revealing work over the last few decades. Basically, I, I guess our founding text is Leviathan and, and the Air Pump, um, where we pay lots and lots of attention to the, uh, the kind of the linguistic turn, the rhetoricity in which truth claims are made. One of the, um, Most frequent stories that we see told about that is that there's a kind of underlying ethical rhetoric and a construction of credibility, which is supremely important that, you know, as Shapin argues, you believe Robert Boyle not necessarily because of the truth of his uh, observations, or rather the truth of the observations are reliant upon us seeing him as a virtuous Christian virtuoso, you know, weird, uh, recluse kind of, the the persona underpins the epistemology. Now, so the problem is what happens when uh, the person writing the text does not actually exist, Mm -hmm. right? Um, How do we deal with the reception of pseudonymous or anonymous texts within the history of science, first of all? But um, in order to uncover that, we have to think about how contemporaries dealt with, uh, this very, very prevalent, uh, phenomenon of pseudonymous and anonymous publication. Uh, within certain genres, we're talking 25, 30, 40% of texts, uh, being anonymous, especially political texts. Um, so what, how do people read those texts? Do they care whether a text is anonymous? What happens when the author's already dead? Uh, before the text was even written. What happens when readers are unsure whether an author is real or merely constructed within the text? Um, so I wanted to throw those kinds of puzzles up to see how social constructivism could deal with them. Like, take a problematize and historicize the category of the sociological actor. Uh, and don't regard that as the foundation upon which a social constructivist model can be based, but rather have a more kind of dynamic notion of sources constructing actors constructing sources, uh a kind of circularity there. And see whether whether we could get beyond that by looking at reading practices and reception and the generation of meaning, rather than uh merely concentrating on authors saying what they thought and pretending that there was no problem there
0: right and there's also a there's a great chapter chapter seven on masks that really explores this and speaking of nothing new under the sun there's also nothing new under the sun spots perhaps because this really looks at
1: good um, pun uh,
0: thank you thank you um, <laughs> this really looks at also the ways in which Segredo's earlier experience with um, you know, this hoax and with pseudonyms and fake identities as a kind of strategy of writing informs the way he's involved in the um, sunspot debate, right? Right. That Galileo was part of. And the larger argument that's really emphasized in this chapter for. Listeners who might be particularly interested in histories of authorship and identity and pseudonyms um, is really sort of asking us, um, among other things, to think about early modern authorial practice as, as you put it, a rich field of positions. You compare Galileo as author to Cervantes, right, M- much more so than to a modern scientific author. So it's a really interesting and I think important moment that. Revisits and concretizes this this um, series of ideas about pseudonyms and authorship, but there's another chapter. Um, this is perhaps one of the final things I'll ask you before we move to our conclusion. But I have to ask you because it's fascinating. Um, there's a chapter, chapter six, that reapproaches a very, very um, well-known Galilean text, the Siderius Nuncius, from the perspective of. Um, sort of thinking about the subterfuge that Segredo was involved in in previous chapters. And you're showing here that by paying attention to, in particular, the woodcuts, right, involved in the printing of the Sidereus Nuncius, we actually come to a very, very new and very different understanding of the text and its history, and especially its initial publication and its initial impact. So this involves thinking about um, the importance of Galileo's vacillation and the time he spent in choosing a title. Um, So that's really, really interesting. But it also involves looking at the marks in um, the title pages, right, and and these woodcuts to try to understand who printed this text and why um, Galileo would have chosen to work with this person. So there's a moment um, in here that I'd love if you could talk about, in particular this figure Roberto Maieri who is fascinating, who comes through in your analysis of his woodcuts. Um, So can you maybe give us um, kind of a a snapshot or a picture of what you think is the most important part of that analysis?
1: Right, sure. Uh, So the Siderius Nuncius is... For a long time, I mean, basically since the day of its publication, been recognized as a cosmos changing book, right? The, uh, it doesn't prove the Copernican hypothesis, but it, uh, demolishes the, uh, the Aristotelian Ptolemaic hypothesis, and it does it beautifully. And this book we now think of as a a classic, a classic of typographical design, a classic of, uh, scientific observation, a a classic of, uh, rhetoric. You know, it's an, an expensive, desirable, Object. So we've we now kind of think of it in that context. But I wanted to think about what was the context of its production. We know a lot about how it was written, um, and we know a fair amount about how it was published. Uh, but what I wanted to do was, well, I guess the the puzzle is on the title page of the book. It says, you know, the Starry Messenger by Galileo, and then it says, printed in Venice by. Tommaso Baglioni, um, 1610. The problem is that Tommaso Baglioni uh, was not a licensed printer in 1610. So there's a problem here that um, the book is kind of unlicensed or illegal or produ- produced illegally. And I wanted to find out why that was uh, and work out what was being covered up by that piece of uh, unreliable evidence. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that, this was first suggested to me by Paul Needham. He said it, I think, as a joke, but I I missed the joke on that occasion. He said, well, of course, the way that you can find out who a book is printed by is, look – either at the typeface, although for 17th century books, that's very hard. You can do that for 15th century books, but not um, not 17th century books. Either identify the typeface or look at um, the stuff that doesn't matter in the books, the stuff that uh, isn't designed specifically for that book, but is reused um, in lots of publications by the same printer. So things like ornamental woodblocks, ornamental capital letters, right nobody thinks apart from what size letter m you you need to to uh to use you don't think which design best suits this book these are this is a a cheap and quick uh book that was was produced the cedaris ninches So, like an idiot, I went around, (laughs) uh, I had this daily routine. I was uh, at the American Academy in Rome at the time, and I had a daily routine of, I think, four different libraries, all of which had differently awkward opening times and different amounts of books that you could order. And I would go... Run from one to another, placing orders as many as I could for that day, and then run to the next one and place orders, and then run to the next one, place orders, then go back to the first one where the books may or may not have been delivered. and all I wanted to do was try and find other instances of these woodcuts being uh, being used so I, I was I'm sure very, very annoying to librarians because I would ask for if they'd given to me you know ten books and then skim through them in 20, 20 seconds each book, no woodblocks not interested. Um, they probably thought I was just looking to steal stuff or something. I don't know. Well, that that comes into the story uh, later on. Um, and then relatively quickly, I found uh, multiple examples of precisely the same wood block. So not just the same kind of uh, iconography of a wood block, but the same lump of wood being used with exactly the same chips missing in it. And I, I found I could reconstruct a kind of genealogy of these woodblocks' use and realize that they'd all travel together back through uh, different publications um, over the space of about 10 years. Woodblocks are really good because they're not durable enough to survive for, uh, with heavy use for centuries. They disintegrate relatively Quickly, But you can keep them going for maybe a few decades, depending on how heavily they're used and what kind of print runs they're used for and how well they're cared for. And they don't seem to be traded as frequently, perhaps, as a uh, typeface might be. And what I found by using that evidence of where else these woodblocks appeared and squaring it with various traces of documentary evidence was that the Sedarius Nuncius was actually printed not by Baglioni, but by his boss – uh, so this wasn't a uh, a radical leap into into an abyss or that uh, shocking a discovery, but it was uh, it was good evidence that uh, his boss, who was this guy Roberto Meetti, and Meetti was relatively you know, well known amongst the world of Venetian print historians because he's the only person during the interdict to be personally excommunicated. <laughs> he publishes all of the. Uh, really hard-hitting political anti-Roman works for uh, Venetian, the Venetian intelligentsia. Uh, most of Sarpe's works get printed by him, and his and and in Rome they're furious with him. They're furious with Sarpi as well, but they're really furious that this guy is doing a good job getting these books printed. And he he'd been in trouble uh, for at least a decade before for smuggling banned books over the Alps and uh, reprinting banned works. I mean, he's, a, he's a, a great underground printer and he does the best he can to efface his, uh, his traces. Right? When he's placed under interdict, uh, he doesn't put his name on a book until the interdict is lifted a decade later. So, there are no books that say printed by Roberto Mietti. After, the the very last book that has his name on is Galileo's book, um, The Defesa, which is published in 1607. After, that's published already after Mietti has been placed under, um, has been excommunicated. Uh, Excommunication at this point, uh, the Edict of Excommunication explicitly states that not only is Maetti going to burn in hell forever and ever, but anyone who prints a book with him is also excommunicated. So, so the puzzle is, first of all, what on earth is Galileo thinking to go with like the one blacklisted printer in Venice in 1607? And then, why on earth would you go back to that printer in 1610 when he's still under inter- uh, uh, un- still excommunicated? Other people seem to be beginning to shun him. He's losing his political support slightly. Um, what what's Galileo's strategy here? Now, Galileo's strategy in the Sidereus Nuncius has traditionally been seen as you know I want to stage a scientific revolution, right by uh, that's the kind of 19th century answer. Uh, the most sophisticated uh, correction to that was Mario Biagioli's wonderful uh, book, Galileo Cortia, where he said, you know, it's actually about power. And, you know, if we read the text and and think about what Galileo is trying to do with this text, what's the text doing performatively in its rhetoric? We see that there are all these moves being made uh, to get into the Medician court, which were successful. What I started to realize was that the bibliographical evidence told another parallel and contradictory story. um, That Galileo was at the same time also showing support for uh, the Venetian Senate's position against Rome by giving his work to, uh, to this guy, Roberto Mietti. And that made me think a little bit about how we use this term strategy in our historical explanations, right? We no longer say that we have the unmediated access to someone's inner psychology. I mean, some historians do, but I, most of us don't think that we can do that. But what we do think we have access to is the strategy. Um, but the strategy is actually a kind of weird hybrid term where what we're describing is what actually happened, but then we're claiming that that's what was meant to happen and that that's what a strategy is. So I wanted to think less kind of, and and therefore it's a teleological, uh, fiction. So what happens if we think of, if we open up this term strategy and think about multiple contradictory strategies, you know, plan B's that don't work or plan A's that don't work and plan B being the thing that actually happened. Um, why should we, how do we, uh, work out the map of possibilities in an actor's, um, mind? What kinds of evidence c- can we use? And the bibliographical evidence here, uh, tells a, uh, a pro-Venetian, uh, story, which is at odds with the, uh, selling out to Tuscany story told by, uh, Biagioli. It doesn't mean that his story is wrong. It just means that uh, Galileo is, is backing several horses at the, at the same time. Um, so, so the kind of methodological question is, how do we move beyond the textual content uh, and look at issues of textual form, in this case the incidentals of a print shop, in order the material evidence to tell us something about uh, the activities and investments of our, of our actors, and I hope that that you know, my my hope would be that if this book does anything, that it, it kind of uh, offers those kinds of toolbox um, case studies uh, for historians working in completely different fields to uh, to then go and kind of um, bricolage up their own toolboxes and and uh, ask new questions of evidence that uh, that aren't the traditional ones where we ask, you know, what does the text say? How does it say it? Who's speaking to whom? You know, we need to think about the materiality of the text a, a lot more. I think.
0: Great. Well, Nick, thank you so much. Um, there's a ton of the, of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to get to, um, including a conclusion that I think really, really nicely and very concisely um, makes and, and remakes some of these points that you've just mentioned. Right, an importance uh, of turning to a focus on the materiality of text. The importance of traditional skills of critical bibliography and archival research, and um, the importance of thinking about historical individuals in terms of constructedness and multiplicity. So there's a lot going on here, and I hope listeners will um, have a chance to to get the book and read it and explore it in much more detail. But given that, is there anything in particular we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
1: Uh, I I would like to say that it's only thirty five (laughs) bucks. Hardback.
0: Great. And the cover cover is very beautiful. And
1: it's it's beautifully designed. Chicago did a great job with it. Uh, You know, if you were wondering, it's important that we state that. Okay. (laughs) Just to think about materiality. Materiality of of text.
0: So now that the book is out, and congratulations on what's not only, I think, a really, really stimulating and thoughtful and fun book, but also a really beautifully and concisely and carefully written text. That's really a pleasure to read. What's next for you? What's currently inspiring you, and what
1: do you <laughs> hope for next? Well, one of the things that started to derail this book uh, towards the end, and I think started to um, impinge upon it uh, and make it go a little bit crazy at times, was that in about two, two or three years ago, uh, some Galileo forgeries appeared, uh, and I started getting distracted from just when I should have been finishing this book for my tenure package. Um, instead, I found myself being drawn into this crazy world of a, an Italian book thief and forger, uh, Massimo Marino De Caro, who had produced a, a copy of the Sidereus Nuncius with Galileo's, um, own signature and drawings of the moon in it. And this thing was being valued at $10 million and had been the object of a two-volume study uh, by a very good team of of experts. Um, I managed to prove that the entire thing from paper up was, in fact, a a modern forgery um, uh, that was produced alongside about 20 other Forgers that we know of so far, so um, that made the book go a little a little weird. There, there are sections at the end about uh, Venetian forgers, where uh, the contemporary world and the 17th century world start to merge a little bit. Uh, but the so the next project is to um, well, it'll. There'll be a, a short book in French coming out in a couple of months called uh, "Forcer de Lune, published by the uh, Bibliothèque de France. Uh, and then I'm hoping to go and write a history of print forgery. So think about some of these issues of uh, how how we discern between the authentic and the fake, uh, what technologies and techniques are used, what's the kind of uh, the user groups for forgeries. Um, so not looking so much at, at the, the world of literary forgeries of people making up uh, text that and then saying that they came from the 16th century or whatever, but looking at attempts to make 16th century books are uh, not in the 16th century. So from the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, what technologies were used? How did they do it? Why? What's the market? What are the aims? What's the reception? How can we tell how they're made? And what's the future of forgery? What would happen? Uh, you know, we can now make a forgery that can pass almost every test, including scientific tests, um, including, you know, tests that uh, on the aging of materials. What will happen when perfect forgeries are being made to our discipline? That's the, the, the next question, I think. Great.
0: Well, these both sound like awesome books. And so best of luck um, with these projects. And thank you again. It really was a pleasure. And congratulations on an awesome book.
1: Thank you very much. Been a pleasure talking to you.